Uh, it's on Tuesday, this, uh, just this week, at our first Tuesday prayer meeting, um, that the elders um, called us as a church to um, uh, uh, embark on a period of serious and sustained prayer for our future direction as a church. We don't know how long that season of prayer will be. be. We feel it, actually that it should include fasting as well, but uh, at our elders' meeting this, re- this week we realised that We've barely taught on the subject of fasting. Many Christians have only the vaguest idea of what fasting is all about. So we're going to make sure that we have a session of teaching on fasting before um, Easter. It's appropriate to try and get it into Lent, isn't it? Um, and um, you will know if you've been here that, as, that the elders have sketched out sort of broad brushstrokes. Daniel was uh, praying about it very broad brushstrokes about where we feel the Lord may be leading us as a church, both in terms of uh, potential church planting and, and of, of uh, uh, enabling this church here to become a, uh, what we've called a centre for, for a hub for mission and ministry. Um, but to be honest, as good as nothing is fixed in uh, stone uh, at the moment, we we really feel we need the Lord to guide us and direct us and to stop ideas that may be very good in some ways but not the right thing for us at this moment and to perhaps um, uh, move us in, in, in new directions. We're very open as elders and we want you to be praying about that. So you'll hear more about it in the coming weeks and months. It's been very appropriate as um, uh, this has has come onto our agenda as a church, uh, that we've been looking at Matthew chapter 10. Um, because there, Jesus starts to train his disciples for their, their missionary life, their, their outward-looking life, for, 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 for the rest of their lives. But actually, in essence, for the rest of the church's history. Um, some of his instructions are very specific um, to uh, that particular time and that particular place, but underneath them, I hope you, um, you were persuaded, are principles that last down through history. We saw Jesus, for instance, um, having insights that he looked at the people, saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd, one of the shoes that the children were um, uh, uh, learning. He had compassion on them. It's getting painful, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, as, he, uh, as he looked out at that world and uh, as he sent them out, we saw they were ordinary people sharing in word and deed, um, living simple lives, living wisely in the world. But last week we saw especially accepting. One has to accept if you're going to follow Jesus. It will always be in the context of suspicion and opposition. Jesus was, was more than a bit florid about that because he wanted his disciples to know if you want to follow me, if you want to do what I call you to do, don't expect to be a friend of the world. That's what falls on each one of us, onto our shoulders as we as we go to work, as we live amongst our, our families, as, as, as we just lead our normal lives. They were sent out for a special mission, but in essence it was no different from the mission that we all have 
to the end of our lives. And we are to live powerlessly, said Jesus, like sheep uh, amongst wolves. Not building great high protections, not becoming wolves and fighting back, but just living powerlessly amongst the people of this world, just as Jesus did. Indeed, says Jesus, it is enough for you to be identified as being like me as you live like me. Verses 24 and 25. Do you remember how he ended it? The student is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebul, that's the, that's the devil, how much more the members of his household? So now, here's our question for this morning. As we complete looking at Matthew 10. In order to live like that, in order to live in the way that Jesus has called his disciples to live in Matthew 10, bearing witness vulnerably in the world, in order to live like that, which of our faculties needs to be the strongest? Oh, perhaps in, uh, immediately we think, well, our will, our ability to decide and implement things. We need iron wills. We need to adopt Nike's slogan, just do it and get out there and uh, do what Jesus tells us to do. But actually always, people who, who are sensitive to... to um, what it means to be human, have long recognised that our will is not as strong as we think it is. We're guided and shaped by much deeper things than the sort of surface decisions that, that, that we make. Sigmund Freud uh, uh, identified that, but many people before and since him have, doing that, uh, have also done that. If we just screw ourselves up, say, I must do this, I must live for Jesus, I must get out there, um, as Jesus says, actually, sooner or later, we'll find ourselves collapsing. Second uh, answer then might be, or perhaps it's our minds that need to be um, uh, particularly engaged. We need to understand the issues and uh, our, our mind is very, very important. That's why we unashamedly focus on teaching the Bible and helping people to understand it. But today Jesus is going to point at something, something, if anything, that is deeper than, than, than simple will and deeper even than understanding. That we need to have really strongly developed if we are to live for Jesus. It's our hearts. It's our emotions. It's our, it's our, it's our, uh, our affections. If you want to put it that way. We need, says Jesus, big hearts. Big hearts for, uh, in, in two dimensions. We need um, big hearts, first of all, he's going to say, to conquer our fears. I don't know whether you noticed that in the first half of the um, um, passage. Three times he said, do not be afraid. 
One of the commonest things he says in, uh, in the New Testament, indeed, I think it is the, the commonest thing he says in the New Testament. It's in all over the place in this passage. Don't be afraid, he says, first of all, to be identified with me. You see that? So don't be afraid of them. For there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Well, who is the them there? Verses 24 and 25. It is the people who call uh, Christians Beelzebul, who, 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 who say they are the devil incarnate. Jesus had people saying that kind of thing about himself. He expects it to be said about his, uh, about his followers. And he says, don't give in to fear of that kind of opposition. Indeed, in verses 26 and 27, he's, he's indicating, I think, that he expects it to get worse. He uses that proverbial statement, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And then he explains himself in verse 27, what I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. In other words, he's saying, he's saying, actually, to a certain extent, I'm speaking privately in my ministry. I'm not revealing everything about myself to everybody. I'm keeping it quiet because he had a carefully organised life plan, which would end in his death, but he didn't want it to happen before um, before his time. And so things were whispered into the disciples' ear at t- ears at times, spoken privately. But he's saying, the time is going to come, disciples, when all of those things that I have spoken about privately, you've got to go up on the flat rooftops of uh, Palestine and just proclaim to anybody who will hear. And if you're going to live like that, you need to be ready to deal with your fears, he's saying. Do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Have a big enough heart that can overcome fear. Don't be afraid, he says, as well, of harm. Verse 28, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in in hell, he says. He, He expects, you see, from time to time, the opposition that arises against, uh, uh, against his people to become murderous. As it does today in country after country around the world. He says, don't, don't fear that. In a sense, there is a, there is a greater, deeper fear that should drive out that relatively superficial fear, he says. We will have to give account one day to God for our lives. And we should fear that more than anything else. Amazing how, how much actually people are, uh, people are driven by fear. It's not, not uncommon. There may be someone here who actually has not yet made the decision to follow Christ. Not because they're not intellectually persuaded by the truth of Christianity. But because frankly they're afraid to. How ridiculous, says Jesus. Particularly, he would say that in, uh, in, 
in, in Britain, wouldn't they? You know, there's, there's opposition, but it's hardly murderous. You know, would you rather be at odds with people who look slightly oddly at you when you walk into the cafe or laugh about you behind your back at their dinner parties or make you feel slightly awkward in other circumstances or don't invite you to their parties because you're a Christian or would you rather be at odds with the God who will one day make a judgment as to whether you go to heaven or hell? That's what Jesus is saying. Just, just, to, just to the east of here, um, over towards um, Brill, there's an ancient duck decoy in a place called Borstal. It's, it, it's very interesting to people like me, anyway. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a big cage on, the, on, a, on, a, on a stretch of water. And uh, in the 17th century, it was, it was built. And what, what you would do is that the ducks would come down onto the open stretch of water and they would have a, uh, a dog that was bred to look a bit like a fox and trained just to t- tantalisingly appear at the side of the water and then disappear again. Just, just enough. So that the ducks don't fly off but they feel a little bit uncomfortable and so they swim quietly to the other side of the water and then the dog just appears again. And they swim down that little um, inlet, not noticing the netting above them. And then the dog just appears again. And they swim further in until the owner slams the cage shut. In many ways, that's, that's, that's how the devil treats people. Frightens them just enough for them to start making minor decisions not to follow Jesus. He knows that if he comes out all out, well, maybe he'll terrify some, but others will say, whoa, something's up here. I need to seriously think about what's going on. And so he just frightens us about our finances. He just frightens us that we're getting old and we haven't found a partner yet and maybe we should compromise on the kind of person we marry. He just um, frightens us a little bit at work. After all, there are redundancies, possibly. I'm just missing a little bit of church, just missing out on uh, studying the Bible every now and again to get into work, to do a little bit of extra work won't be a big thing. Gently, 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 through fear, people are nudged into a trap. Do not yield to fear, says Jesus. Don't be afraid to be identified me. Uh, uh, um, as belonging to me. Don't be afraid of harm. Don't be afraid, he says, to be vulnerable. Our two sparrows, verse 29, not sold. Uh, let me uh, give you the headings. Our two sparrows 
not sold for a penny. Not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. Even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Literally the phrase outside, translated outside your father's care, just, just is apart from your father. Apart from his care, apart from his will, apart from his knowledge, apart from his purpose, all of those things are included. And says Jesus, no sparrow falls to the ground unless our father wills it. Notice he's not the father to the sparrow, particularly, he's the father to us. But even though he's, he's just creator to the sparrow in one sense, He watches over those little birds and cares about when they fall. How much more then for human beings who can call God Father should they expect that he will care for them? Notice there is no promise that we will not fall. It is not that there will be no harm of any kind that will come to us. The promise is we will not fall separated from our Father, apart from our Father. If you are a Christian here, he has formed an unbreakable bond with you and there is nothing, nothing, not even Death itself that can separate you from the love of God. And therefore you are free. You do not need to fear. Almost our primal fear, perhaps, is the fear, is the, is the little child in the supermarket separated from mummy fear. We grow up. We have to live out in, the, in this world. But we still retain that anxiety. Am I alone here? The answer for Christians is no, you are not. There is a Father who is at your side who cares for you. And there is no harm that can come to you apart from Just uh, last week, just a few days after um, Amy Skeet arrived in um, a city where she's going to be serving in the Middle East, um, most of you will be aware, there was an incident, a young Christian teacher in a local school, he was shot and killed by one of his, uh, uh, one of his pupils. It's a very rare event. Amy's not in any particular danger. Everybody's content that she and the rest of the team should stay safe in that city But it reminds us following Christ can put us in danger. Whether it is is out there or whether it is here, one way or another, there can be costs. And if you make your decisions of life around minimising the chances of potential harm, you will live a captive life, captive to fear. And Jesus doesn't want that. 
And that young teacher's life ended early. Was it a tragedy? Yes. Was it deeply sad? Yes. Was his life a waste? A thousand times no. You read his obituaries, he taught thousands, he mentored dozens, he changed and influenced lives, hundreds of people turned up at his funeral from a Muslim city and listened to Christian prayers and Christian truth at his graveside. And he is in the loving arms of his Heavenly Father. I would a thousand times rather live that life than a life separated from God which is long but sterile and captive and filled with fear and that at the last day ends with the terrible fear of facing the God of judgment. Do not be afraid, says Jesus. We need big hearts. Big hearts, then, that conquer fear. And big hearts, too, which passionately love. That's the, uh, the theme of uh, verses 37 to 42, I think. Alongside, you see, fear. The other, the other deep, primal, driving force in our hearts is our desires, is what we love. And uh, that's entirely appropriate, says Jesus. He doesn't want you to stop desiring things. He wants you to desire what is of true value, ultimate value, with all of your hearts. First of all, himself, for instance. That's a, um, a, a Jesus himself, verse, the, verse 37. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is one of the more shocking things, it seems to me, that Jesus says in the Gospels and he says it in several places and in different ways. Our love for him, he says, must transcend all other human loves. Here he isolates particularly love for parents and love for children. And if you're, a, if you're a parent here in particular, I suspect it, it, it hits you, doesn't it? But I have to say, as, as over the years I have pondered this teaching of Jesus that we must love him more than anyone else, I've slowly realised that it's actually not a dishonour to our family uh, our families and those other people that we love to say that, that our love for them is subordinate to our love for Jesus. Rather, it's an appropriate love for a fellow creature which must always fit in place underneath our supreme love for our Creator and Redeemer, Jesus Christ. It cannot be otherwise. Indeed, if we put it the wrong way around, the very people that we think we are loving are served badly. If you read through the Old Testament, for instance, you will find father after father after father who actually overindulges his son 
and finds that he has introduced a corruption into the life of the family. Look at, look at Jacob indulging Joseph and all the trouble that that came which nearly got Joseph murdered. Or look at David indulging his son Absalom so that his son finally rises up against him and nearly dethrones him. There is a consistent pattern in Scripture that kids thrive when they know God is first in the family. And they do not thrive if they think they are the centre of the universe. So Jesus is not, 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 not asking us to, to dishonour our loved ones, rather he's asking us to love them appropriate. Even, even kids, it's quite, quite common for young adults to, from non-Christian homes to become Christians and for their parents to feel massively dishonoured in the short term. But I've lived long enough to see many of those young Christian people grow up over the years and those parents who were once so hostile slowly come to realise that they're the best kids they've got. Because those kids have learned to love God with all their heart and mind and soul and strength and honour their parents. So have a heart that loves the right things, says Jesus. And the first of those things to love is me. No one can follow me, he's saying, unless they love me more than every other um, person in the universe. And then, uh, uh, secondly, we are to love life. I think that's what he's getting at when he gets in verse 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. The Christian life is full of ironies and, and none of them is more deep than that. The, the, the person who says, no, I, 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 I love life so much that I want to set out now to live it to the full and indulge every aspect of, 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 of the life that I can now, finds that it falls through their hands and crumbles before them and they lose it. And the person who says, actually, I'm going to give my life away completely for the life that Jesus offers me finds that they find it. One of the most deeply fulfilled uh, people I've ever met is is an old friend of mine. He's a veterinary friend. He's from um, California and he started his veterinary career um, uh, in California in um, uh, Orange County, I think it was, earning big bucks and, uh, and doing very nicely. But he felt that God would have him be a missionary. He went to one of the poorest countries in the world, to Nepal, uh, initially. He not only determined to serve in Nepal, he was absolutely determined that he shouldn't live significantly differently from the people around. He uh, embraced their diet, their lifestyle, and he, he raised his kids along, alongside them there. And there was, there was real pain and real difficulty and real struggle at times, but actually great joy. I remember him telling me that um, uh, an American film crew came to, to film his, his uh, life for, uh, 
for a documentary and this film crew were, were um, obsessed by, by portraying his amazing sacrifice. And he said, what? This is the greatest life I could have, uh, could have, could imagine. I've never been more fulfilled than I am here. I may be rich. He used to say to the Nepalis, they would all ask him how much he, uh, how much he earned, of course, because they were fascinated by that. He, he used to say to the Nepalis, actually, I have friends who just give me enough to keep me staying here. And that's enough for me. Such a a happy man. Who now is near the end of his life um, and actually in uh, Thailand now doing something similar. But every letter I get from him just exudes joy of life. Love life, says Jesus, and choose the sort of life that you really will find satisfying. And what you have to do is give it away. And then you find life itself. No one would ever surely want anything else. And then, love real, true Reward, verse 40 to 42. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me and anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. Reward, reward. Reward. Welcoming other people. Serving other people. Looking after the little ones, as Jesus puts it. Even giving them a little uh, glass of water. Will not only be blessed in itself, you will receive a reward from God. Two of the things that I have found most liberating in my Christian life over the years is one, We don't need to be embarrassed about um, gain, reward. It is a truncated form of Christianity that says, I just do it because it's right. Jesus again and again, from beginning to end in the Gospel, says, certainly it's right, but do it because your heavenly Father will reward you. And the second thing that I've found absolutely liberating is exploring and understanding what the Bible speaks about in terms of that reward. It does not speak of some sort of attenuated, continuing spiritual life that is perhaps all right, but uh, but much less than here. It speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. It speaks of resurrection life, so that Jesus, the risen Jesus, can enjoy food, and eat with his disciples, and finally live a, 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 a life not overshadowed by death, but a physical, solid, resurrection life. I, I go walking the dog 
every, every morning. And uh, frankly, my walks are far too short, particularly on a, on a good day like this. And I have to come back and my, sort of, my heart sinks slightly as I, uh, as I think, oh, I've got to come back to all that admin and that boring stuff and that difficult hard work. Um, uh, in, and I would much rather be out here. But then I think, actually, that's eternity. The joys of the trees and the, and, the, and the fields and the sunshine and all of those good things, as far as we can see, that is eternity. I've got all of that before me and I've got a little time to invest in that eternity now. Coming and serving God's people. I'll do that. So have a passion for true reward. Serve people in that joyful, optimistic confidence that God promises you great reward. Do not have a heart which fears. Do not have a vacillating heart that, 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 whose passions are weak and, and wander all over the place into different trivial things that will not satisfy it. Have a big heart, says Jesus. A heart that will stand and not be afraid. A heart that will be passionate for him, for real life, for real reward. We need hearts like that if we're going to live for him. Emily Bronte, one of the Bronte sisters, um, died relatively young, as I remember. And I think this poem, that I'll read the first stanza of, was found after her death. But it absolutely encapsulates this strong heart, big heart, that will not fear because it has caught a glimpse of glory. No coward soul is mine. No trembler in the world's storm-troubled sphere. I see heaven's glory shine. And faith shines equal, arming me from fear. Fear.